Hey friends, this is your host Elle, and you're listening to Chilled to the Bone. Welcome back to another week here at Chill to the Bone. I have a true crime case for you all today. I think next week we'll do a spooky tale and then come right back to true crime. I just want to thank everybody who followed me on Instagram. I got over 100 followers, so I picked a random follower and sent them $10. Once I hit 200, I'll do that again. So thank you so much for following me and listening each week. Tell your friends to follow me. I share my true crime cases on there and I post true crime memes. So you should definitely give me a follow. But anyways, let's jump into our case. Today, I am covering a case of a couple killed by somebody they only gave love to and protected. This is the story of Alan and Diane Johnson. The Johnson family seemed like the average American family. The couple tied the knot on April 23, 1983. Diane had a two-year-old son named Matt from a previous relationship who Alan adopted. Four years later, they welcomed a girl who they named Sarah. They were the picture-perfect family of four. Diane Johnson worked at a medical clinic, and Alan was part owner of a successful landscaping business. They both worked hard to give their family a good life. They had a beautiful house on two acres of land. The family lived in Bellevue, Idaho, which is about two hours east from Boise. In 2000, only 1,976 people lived within the town. It's considered a very safe area to live to this day, and it's one of the few places people still feel safe enough to leave their doors unlocked. So, the Johnsons seem to have the perfect life. A good family, great jobs, a nice big house in a beautiful area. But, things aren't always as they seem behind closed doors. In 2003, Sarah was 16 and began dating 19-year-old Bruno Santos. Besides the obvious age gap between the two, Bruno wasn't the best guy for Sarah to fall for. He was cocky and rude. He was a high school dropout who was selling drugs. This relationship began to be a common topic for arguments and caused tension between Sarah and her parents. Even her friends didn't approve of this relationship. One of Sarah's friends said she felt like Sarah could have done better. While Sarah was on the basketball and volleyball team at school and was very involved, Bruno was a high school dropout now selling drugs while Sarah was from a good family. Sarah's friend said their relationship just didn't make sense to her. Sarah would lie to her parents, telling them that she was staying at a friend's house, but actually sleeping over at Bruno's. Over Labor Day weekend in 2003, Alan somehow found out his teen daughter was staying at her older boyfriend's apartment, so he went and got her. While picking Sarah up, Alan told Bruno that if he didn't leave Sarah alone, 
the Johnsons would call the police and report him for statutory rape. See, this was a big threat because, of course, Bruno could get in trouble for sleeping with an underage girl. But he was also undocumented. If the police were called, Bruno was at risk of being deported to Mexico. Sarah's parents took her car away to make sure she didn't go see Bruno, and she was grounded for lying about her whereabouts. You would expect a 16-year-old girl to throw a fit and argue after being grounded and after her parents threatened her boyfriend, but apparently Sarah seemed to just accept the consequences. Her brother Matt remembered this as odd after talking to her on the phone while he was eight hours away at college. Matt said about this time, quote, She told me that she had gotten in trouble, which I had already known of from my mom. She told me she had been punished, that her car had been taken away. It seemed odd to me that she was accepting her punishment. She said, I know what they're trying to do. Matt said it was unusual for her to accept punishment. That just wasn't normal, he said, adding that he almost called his mother to discuss things, but it was late, so he didn't call that night. She's just not one to admit that she's wrong, he said. She always has to have the last word. She always has to be right. It kind of raised a little red flag, not that I think anything would happen, but her demeanor was changed. Over the weekend, Sarah was a bit upset at her parents and decided to stay in the guest house, which was on the floor below a rental apartment on the property. This is somewhat important, so just remember that she was staying in the same building as the rental. The following Tuesday, three days after Alan had picked up Sarah from Bruno's, Alan and Diane Johnson were murdered in their home. On the morning of September 2nd, 2003, the Johnson's neighbor Kim was sitting in her kitchen enjoying a cup of coffee when she heard a frantic knock at her door. On the other side of the door was Sarah Johnson. Sarah told Kim that she'd be in bed when she heard gunshots. Sarah said that she got up and called for her mother and father but got no response. Sarah had then gone to their room and saw both of her parents shot and dead. Not knowing what else to do, Sarah had run out of the house into her neighbor's house. Kim couldn't wrap her head around what Sarah was telling her. She couldn't believe her longtime neighbor and friend could be dead. So, not wanting to call police if something wasn't actually wrong, Kim decided to go check on her neighbors. Kim described that once she entered the house, she could smell gun smoke and blood. She entered the master bedroom and saw blood, hair, and skin splattered on the walls, and her friend Diane dead on the bed, just like Sarah had reported. Kim ran from the house, back to her home, and called police. Police arrived and entered the horrific scene. They found no signs of a break-in or forced entry. Nothing seemed to have been stolen. Sheriff Walt Femling said it was the most disturbing crime scene he had ever seen. He said there was blood and hair on the carpet, on the ceiling, on the walls, and there's part of a skull in the hallway. They found blood splatter in Sarah's room that was across the hall from her parents. After seeing the scene, Femling immediately closed down the street, which prevented the garbage truck from picking up the garbage that morning. Speaking of garbage... The Johnson's outdoor garbage, which was sitting at the curb waiting to be picked up, was full of evidence. Police found within the garbage bin a pink bathrobe that had blood splatter on the back of it. 
one leather glove, and one latex glove. The other leather glove was later found in Sarah's room. Within the house, police found Diane Johnson murdered in her bed, still under the covers. On the floor next to the bed was Alan. On the floor of the attached bathroom were wet, bloody footprints. Briefly, police considered it could have been a murder-suicide, but pretty quickly ruled it as a homicide. Police determined that Diane was shot first while still in bed. Alan was in the shower when he heard the gunshot. He exited the shower and was shot in the chest in the bathroom, but was able to walk into the bedroom where he collapsed and bled out. On the foot of the bed were two knives, and on the floor of the room was a rifle that was later identified as the murder weapon. The police brought a plumber out to check the toilets for any other evidence. In the plumbing, he found a hair cap that had been flushed. Police immediately looked into Bruno as a suspect. He was their first suspect and went searching for him right away. They didn't have to look far because he actually showed up at the crime scene. Both police and the Johnsons' family were convinced Bruno had to be the guy. Only Sarah said he wouldn't have done it, and even claimed Alan had been like a father to Bruno. While he was disrespectful towards the police, Bruno had a solid alibi and didn't seem to have any knowledge of the murder. The police collected his DNA, which did not match any found at the scene. Police began to investigate who else had motive to kill Diane and Alan. During this time, Sarah and her brother Matt spent nights at Blaine County's Minimum Security Jail for protection in case there were any further attacks on their family. Matt said during this he felt threatened and scared all the time. One of the first people of interest police talked to was the owner of the murder weapon. The shotgun belonged to a man named Mel, who rented the upstairs apartment of the Johnson's guest house. The one Sarah had stayed in two days prior. When police searched the apartment, they found the scope belonging to the murder weapon. When Mel was questioned, he said that he had been visiting family two hours away in Boise for Labor Day weekend. He said he stored the gun in an unlocked closet so anyone could have grabbed it. His fingerprints had been found on the gun, but it was his gun, so that was to be expected. His family backed up his story that he was with them all weekend and during the time of the shooting. There was another set of fingerprints found on the rifle that was identified as belonging to a man named Chris. Chris said he had helped Mel move into the apartment the year prior, and that's the only reason his fingerprints were on the gun. Mel verified this as true. Police didn't really see any reason Chris would want to harm the Johnsons, so he wasn't focused on too much. With those suspects cleared, police began to suspect another person who had access to the murder weapon and had motive. Sarah Johnson. Not only did she have motive, the evidence pointed towards her involvement. The pink bathrobe found with the blood splatter was confirmed to belong to Sarah. In the pockets of the robe were bullets and more latex gloves. The leather glove found in the trash had gunpowder residue on it, and remember, the other leather glove was found in Sarah's room. As I mentioned earlier, there was blood splatter on the walls of her room. This meant her bedroom door was open when her parents were shot, but she had told police her room had been closed. 
Some people believe that she had been there, but wasn't the shooter. The blood splatter on her robe was on the back, so some say they thought she must have been there with her back turned as her parents were shot. But police believe she had put it on backwards to just cover her clothes. During the entire investigation, police and family thought Sarah was acting strange and not how they would expect a kid to act after finding her parents murdered. For example, when the investigators removed Alan and Diane's bodies from the house, Sarah was sitting on the fence and watched the body bags pass by without any emotion. Femling said most 16-year-olds would have been hiding. Sarah's friends agreed she was acting strange. They said she didn't seem genuinely sad and was more focused on getting her hair and nails done. One of her friends remembered at a volleyball practice Sarah asked her to find Bruno and tell him that Sarah loved him no matter what happened. Her friend said that when this happened, her heart sank, and she then believed Sarah had in fact killed her own parents. Even Sarah's own family thought she was acting guilty. Her grandma remembers at the crime scene, Sarah was crying, but stopped as soon as a friend walked over to comfort her. Sarah whispered to her friend to check if Bruno was okay. Her mother's sister, so her aunt, Linda said that every time she had been interrogated, she would change parts of her story. Like at first, her bedroom and her parents' bedroom doors were closed during the murder. Then the next time, she said they were both open. Sometimes she said she ran from the house through the front door, but then the next time she said she left through the back. At this time, Sarah was actually living with her Aunt Linda. Linda remembers trying not to let Sarah know that Linda was doubting her innocence. So, I keep mentioning Sarah has a motive, but what would that be exactly? Essentially, it was to be with Bruno. Obviously, her parents were standing between Sarah and Bruno being together. So, with them gone, it would have made their relationship easier. Her parents also had a large life insurance policy of $680,000 between the two of them that Sarah would have gotten half of. That type of money would have allowed Sarah and Bruno to live a comfortable life together. I don't think Sarah thought this plan all the way through, though, because one, if she or Bruno were convicted of murder, they wouldn't be together, and two, the murder brought attention to Sarah and Bruno. So police learned about his undocumented status, and he was deported back to Mexico. Six weeks after the murders, Sarah's DNA was found inside the gloves found in the trash that had blood and gunshot residue on them. Even with all of this evidence, she never confessed to the crime, but continued to claim that an intruder she never saw had killed her parents. With all this evidence against Sarah, she was arrested. She pled not guilty to the murders and was held on a $2 million bond. During the trial, Bruno was brought back to the U.S. to testify against Sarah. This may seem cold to testify against your girlfriend, but Sarah's defense was trying to pin it all on Bruno and he did not want to go to jail for something he did not do. The prosecution said that there was no evidence Bruno was involved and all physical evidence pointed to Sarah being the killer. Another person to take the stand was Sarah's brother, Matt. He told the jury how Sarah and his mom did not get along. He called their relationship fairly rocky with constant fighting. Matt said after the murder, Sarah told him 
On the morning of the murder around 2 a.m., somebody had come to the house, causing Alan and Diane to check the yard. Matt did not believe this story. He said his dad would have called the police if anyone was on their property. Also, Sarah never told the story to anybody else, so it didn't seem very likely. Matt also said his sister was known for telling lies. Sarah's defense lawyer pointed out that Matt would receive more money if Sarah was convicted. Matt responded, I'm here to testify for my parents, not for any financial benefit. Sarah's cellmate Melinda testified as well. She said, quote, One time, Sarah said, When I killed, then she stopped herself and was like, When the killers killed, unquote. Sarah's Aunt Linda, the one she had been living with, also testified against Sarah, telling the court, quote, When we would be discussing Alan and Diane and somebody would be upset, Sarah would roll her eyes and act disgusted, unquote. One of Sarah's friends testified. She told the court on the day after the murder, Sarah told her that she and her brother would be taken care of for life. But Sarah wished she could get an apartment because she didn't like the people she was going to be living with. Sarah's lawyer built his defense on no blood, no guilt. He said, quote, Her mother's head literally exploded in a spherical fashion. The gun itself had blood on it, yet there was none on her. Unquote. He also tried to have a video shown of a reenactment of the shooting with them shooting a coconut to show how the blood would have hit whoever shot the um, couple, but the judge wouldn't allow the video. And while it's true there was no blood on her, there was that bathrobe, the gloves, and a shower cap that had blood on it that she could have used to cover herself. It might seem unlikely that a 16-year-old would think of all that, but she was apparently a big true crime fan, so maybe she had heard of some ideas from cases she followed. I don't want to compare any of us with Sarah, but I do think people who follow true crime would have more ways to try and cover their tracks than people who don't listen to true crime because they might know what kind of evidence police tend to look for. During the sentencing, her mom's sister Debbie said, I hope your father looking into your eyes when he was shot will be burned in your mind forever. Matt addressed his sister, saying, I think some honesty needs to come out of you, and you need to plead to the court for some forgiveness. Of all the things I miss, I miss their hugs, their bear hugs. Matt said to the judge, I lost the two best friends I ever had. Judge, I would like to see the maximum sentence because after tomorrow, I don't want to hear about her or this event ever again. I feel she has no remorse and I feel she would do it again, except she would be better at planning it and she would try to get away with it. The trial lasted for five weeks and at the end of it, Sarah received two life sentences without parole on March 16, 2005. This is unrelated to the case, but five years later, in 2010, Bruno Santos was somehow back in Idaho after being sent back to Mexico after the trial, and was arrested for selling half a pound of meth to an undercover Idaho police detective. He was still undocumented at this time, so immigration detainers were issued for him. In 2012, Sarah's new lawyer, Dennis Benjamin, filed a petition for a new trial. He said that her legal team had been ineffective. 
He said that with the new DNA investigation techniques, Sarah would be found innocent. Benjamin had been working with an attorney from the Idaho Innocence Project. In 2017, the Idaho Supreme Court rejected Sarah's appeal. The Idaho Supreme Court also said that Sarah is not entitled to having new testing run on the DNA samples, and that claims that she had ineffective counsel during the initial trial isn't good enough reason for a post-conviction appeal. And that is the most recent update I could find on Sarah Johnson. Maybe the Idaho Innocence Project is still working on her case. Maybe things have been slowed down due to COVID, or maybe they're waiting for new evidence to come out, or maybe they're not even working on the case at all. I'm not really sure, but to this day, Sarah maintains her innocence. So what do you think? Do you think she is innocent? Do you think she was involved but had help? Or did the court get it right and convicted a guilty murderer? I think she did kill her parents. If that garbage truck had taken away the garbage that morning, most of the evidence would have been lost and she would have known what day that garbage came. Also, the fact that after her parents were murdered, she talked about the money and got her hairs and nails done and even went to volleyball practice the day after just doesn't sit right with me. I know people react differently, but being focused on the inheritance rather than the death of your parents just seems too fishy to me. I want to now cover just a bit about the victims. Alan and Diane were described as longtime sweethearts. They were said to treasure their family. Alan was well known in the community for his hard work and attention to detail, but was never too busy to stop and chat or lend a helping hand. Diane was described as curious, loving, and loyal, and the best friend you could have. Matt remembers hunting with his father and that his mother had the ability to make everyone happy. There was a scholarship created in their honor. I wanted to include the link to the scholarship in case anybody wanted to donate, but the link is broken. I reached out to the scholarship through Facebook, and they said that the scholarship is still active, and they're waiting to update the link once the application reopens through the school. I will include the Facebook page, so if you want to check it out, you totally can. And once that link is fixed, I will update my Instagram to let everybody know that it is back up for donations. I didn't want to dig deep into Matt's life, especially since he said he didn't want to hear about Sarah or the case ever again. Um, but I did see that he's now an engineer and a business owner and seems to be somewhat involved in that scholarship. On his Facebook, he has a lot of pictures of his parents, and I really hope he's doing well today. He lost his parents and only sibling in the worst possible way. And if anyone deserves to only have good things happen to them from here on out, it's him. One of my sources was a 2020 episode on this case. You can watch it for free on YouTube. It's pretty emotional seeing her family talk about the case, especially her older grandparents. It will be my first source listed in case you want to check it out. Anyways, that's all I have today. I'm sorry this episode was a little bit shorter. I included everything I could find and I didn't want to not share it just because it was less than the 30 minutes. But next week, I will bring you a longer one. I hope I did this case justice. If you found it interesting, 
please follow me on Instagram at Chill to the Bone Podcast. Like and subscribe to the podcast, and I hope you will come back next Thursday for an all new episode. Talk to you later, friends. Bye.